whatever reason, I learned this uh, because at one point I had aspirations of maybe pursuing leadership in politics. And I learned that it was very sad to me. There was no more middle. It was There was no more moderates. It was far left or far right. And it was very hard to bring people together. And that's what really what I loved about what you were doing. And I think that people in general, especially people who love America, are looking for an opportunity to be part of something that's not divisive, where they can love America and they don't have to pit themselves against other people in the process. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the man behind those custom pins I sometimes wear, including the, the math pin. He's been a music impresario, a freaking head of uh, law enforcement, an actor. You might know him as Uncle Louie from the Goldbergs, and now he's running a thriving growth e-commerce business, uh, helping people commemorate their own service, Uncle Louis himself, Louis Gregory. Welcome, Louis. Thank you for having me, man. It's great to see you. We're always talking and texting. Now I get to, I feel like I'm visiting with you. Well, I feel the same way. And thank you for being such a great friend and champion over the last several years. So people think I've had a varied career. I mean, your, your career uh, beats mine solid. And I have so many questions about how the heck you, you've done what you've done. So you started out... Uh, producing rap albums in New York City in the 80s, including some household names for people of our generation? Well, yes yes and no. I started out as a rapper. I wanted to be a rapper. and uh, Do you want to spit some tracks right now? I mean, you have like the, the gear for it. Yeah, man, let's do it. You ready? Yeah, do it. My flow is detra to the mental, like O2 to the lung, like a crockhead be strong, like strikes to an owl, because it's a title bout. So let's get ready to rumble. How's that? Wow. Give it up. Now, I wrote that 30 years ago. What was your rap moniker? Uh, I, can't dis I can't disclose that. I've done a really good job of hiding any recordings of me as a rapper. You know, that's pretty funny, man. There was like a congressional candidate uh, in an area near me, and then his opponent um, unearthed his old rap videos as a way to attack him. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was pretty funny. I mean, my, I didn't know what to make of it. My daughters have tried to do the same thing. I've, I've prevented my daughters from finding them, so I definitely don't want the world to find them. That, that, that's some good uh, uh, hygiene. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that you got out of the music business uh, uh, for a particular reason. Like, what, I mean, A lot of people obviously dream about that business. So that business has gone through incredible transformations, most of them negative over the last number of years. I went on an adventure. After 9-11, I decided I wanted to be involved in fighting terrorism. And I started what I thought would be an adventure, and eventually that became a career. And I, at the time, I left the music behind. Um, I remember having a conversation with Prince Marky e. D from the Fat Boys, may he rest in peace, and Eric B. from Eric B. and Rakim, and those, I was very lucky to have legends like that as my mentors. And I said to Eric, hey, I'm leaving. I'm going to become a federal agent. 
He said, come on, Lou, stop playing. You're not going to give up all this and go do that. I said, yeah, I'm going to. But I never thought, you know, 20 years later, I would still be wearing that uniform. But 9-11 changed uh, a lot of what was going on in the world. But as somebody who loved America, it changed a lot of what was going on in my mind and my heart. And I realized coming from a family of people who I looked up to that served our country that somebody had to step up and do it. And why not me? I just didn't think I was going to do it for so long. <laughs> yeah, well, you got into it and you wound up uh, being a really senior leader uh, at Department of Homeland Security. How many people did you manage at one point? Uh, well, I started as a trainee as a founding member of Homeland Security and I was promoted nine times. Um, and eventually I was a director working out of the Reagan building in Washington, D.C. Uh, and we had 30,000 employees. Uh, that, that's incredible. What was your family life like during that time? Was there someone who was like, hey, we're moving to D.C.? Or what was that situation? You know, throughout my career, we all made a lot of sacrifice, working on holidays, sometimes working doubles. Uh, I remember uh, working with uh, a coworker who became my best of friends. His name was George. And on Christmas, I would say, I'm going to go in and I'm going to work in the morning so that you can open presents because his kids at the time were babies. And he would rush, rush in like, I got to get there. I got to get, you know, replace Louis so he can get home and his daughters are going to wake up and they're going to open Christmas presents. And you have those sacrifices that a lot of people don't realize go into serving. And then as time went on and I traveled a lot and I lived in D.C. and I spent at one point seven months in D.C. without my family. So oh, no. it was it definitely takes its toll on everybody. But I think um, when the person serving is making those sacrifices, their family is as well. Now, so you've been inside the guts of our government, our bureaucracies. Uh, you met some awesome people and probably some less than awesome people. Uh, what should the average American know about uh, what's happening in our government that they should be excited about and then what we could potentially try and change? Sure. I, I think that um, one of the most amazing things to me about working within government through the different levels was realizing how many amazing innovative thinkers that we have. You know, when you're pulling from a, a workforce of 30,000 people, there's uh, such an opportunity to interact with a really diverse group of individuals that all share one common love, a love of country. And then when you're working for a border security agency and you're in a time like we're in now and you're trying to um, utilize different types of technology – to innovate a process that essentially hasn't changed in a hundred years, right? Somebody comes on a boat or an aircraft, they present a document, they wait in line, and we all dread waiting in any kind of line. And we have to figure out how do we bridge the gap of technology enforcement and make that um, more of an enhanced experience for everybody. And when I was in headquarters, I worked with a gentleman um, who was considered the father of global entry. And he did just that. He created this trusted traveler program because we always were of the thought process that 99% of the people coming are good, law-abiding citizens. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. why make them go through this huge uh, process when we could essentially screen them in advance? And it's like pushing the border out. So his name was John Wagner, and he created Global Entry, 
which was not only was it an amazing program for people who travel, but it saved the government a lot of money because we spent less time doing things that didn't need to be done. It was very efficient. And it created, from as far as I'm concerned, one of the largest surpluses of income for the government because, as you know, people are paying for this membership. It's like any, any entrepreneur would love a subscription-based uh, program where people are paying money for something that's intangible and then renewing it frequently. And who is your, your base of customers? Every single U.S. citizen in, in our country. So that's a, a great opportunity, right, to to bring income in. And then you say, okay, well, what you know, what are we doing with that income now to put it to work for us to continue down that path? And I think there's still huge opportunities in that area. Well, you're clearly a serial entrepreneur. You're running a business now that you started. You've started uh, in, like, totally different industries. Uh, you mentioned the border, and uh, I'm sure most people listening to this are very discouraged by the political conversation around the border, where most Americans are generally on board with uh, the fact that we need to have borders and, and have them be secure and then treat people who are trying to get in um, humanely but enforce uh, the rules as as they are. Um, the problem I think most of us kind of sense is that um, it's a bit of a mess where rules aren't actually being enforced in any uniform way. Um, and I was reading about how the border uh, forces um, have a really hard time getting and keeping people because apparently it's just a miserable, miserable job. Uh, they're not well compensated. They're down in relatively desolate uh, abandoned areas. So I was reading like the average stint of someone um, on border duty is something like 18 months. Like as soon as someone gets there, they're like, I got to get out of here. And, and so then we're having these political conversations like, oh, we should do this. We should do that. Meanwhile, uh, on the ground, whatever policy you're designing, you're not necessarily uh, going to be able to enforce. Right. Well, it's certainly not a glamorous job for the people on the southwest border. And recruitment is always very difficult. And I think um, for a lot of people, they may not realize what they're signing up for. And it's it in today's society, it is a thankless job, and it's a very dangerous job. So when you sign up for a job where you're essentially in the desert trying to prevent people from entering illegally in between ports of entry, and, you know, there's things that you may not think about, like where do you go to the bathroom? And this is particularly... Uh, a difficult situation for, I call, oh, I don't call it, but Border Patrol calls it the 5%. They have only 5% representation of female Border Patrol agents because it's not, the job doesn't lend itself to the, the simplest of tasks, like how do you go to the bathroom if you're in the desert, right? So when you get this job and they're recruiting, they show you these high-speed videos, helicopters, boats, vehicles rushing through the dunes, but they don't show you, like, you know, the the day-to-day -day bad stuff that you have to do when your office is the Rio Grande, and you're in Del Rio, and you're trying to figure out, like, okay, what what's next? It's it's a dangerous place to be. So I, I've, I've never heard the statistic of 18 months. Um, I personally think it's a great uh, career for people, and it does have a lot of opportunity to earn, to have benefits, and to have a great retirement, but it certainly doesn't go without da the dangers 
of law enforcement and literally the Wild West. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So how many years were you um, in the federal government? 20 years. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Holy cow, yeah. man. And when, when you've been in the government that long, don't you get all these crazy sweet benefits packages and, and everything else? Like, uh, uh, why do I feel like your departing the government was somehow an unusual decision? And also, how the heck did you wind up on ABC's sitcom during this time where I know you're a sag after member and the rest of it? Well, when I started working for the government, I remember meeting the old-timers, and they were on a different retirement system. It was called CSRS, and I was on FERS. And essentially, at some point in time, the government decided that the retirement system was too good. So they ended it, and I was on the new one, which wasn't too good. So it, it, it went on a formula based on your high three years, and then it's such a bad retirement that they allow you to, they call it bridge your social security. So you're retiring at an age where you can't collect your social security yet, but they're acknowledging that you couldn't survive on your retirement alone. So they allow you to collect that social security early, if that makes sense. So it's not the most lucrative of, of retirements. And for me, I took a deferred retirement, so I don't collect my retirement. Because when I decided to take that leap, the leap of faith to give up a paycheck every two weeks to chase my dream of being an entrepreneur, I didn't know if it was going to work. So I wanted to leave that door open so that if I decided, you know, in the next five years, man, I made a really big mistake. I want to go back. Uh, that was, that was the, the, the decision that I made. You, your retirement is augmented by your ability to save along the way in what they call the thrift savings plan, which is like a 401k for government employees. So you can pull an annuity on top of your retirement and your social security stipend. Um, but the average person working on a border on a border for a border security agency, whether it's border patrol, field operations, or air and marine. They're making one hundred and twenty to one hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year. So if they're managing their money properly and they're saving like they're 
taught to save in their thrift savings plan, they should be doing pretty well for themselves. So, so you made the decision to become an entrepreneur, uh, and you started an awesome business that people can check out. I think the website is UncleLouis.com. No, actually, um, the website is AmericasFrontline.com. And the Uncle Louie website. Uncle Louie redirects. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, and that's kind of related to what you mentioned about uh, how I started acting. I, I, when I was a kid, I did theater. And I always loved acting and music. And um, I loved the show The Goldbergs because it took place in the 80s, which is my favorite time. 80s toys, 80s music. Um, to me, that was the it's best. It's a good decade, the man. Best decade. I mean, I'm, same, same. Yeah, so um, the creator of the show, who it's based on, Adam Goldberg, had reached out to me many times. And he was like, hey, do you know this person? Can you help me um, to bring this 80s star on the show? And we did so oh, much together. you were like the 80s hookup? <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was the 80s hookup. I was the 80s hookup. And then eventually, he's like, you know, you really need to be on the show. And I was like, I really want to be on the show because it's my daughter's favorite show. And how cool would it be? We watch it together every week if I don't tell her. And one week we're watching and I come on the show. So it evolved into that. Um, I did, you know, some episodes of that show and it was an amazing experience. Adam became a friend. Um, and it wasn't until I actually went to New York City, I think in 2019, and I sat down with Michael Strahan, who's become a monumental figure in my life as a mentor. He's just taught me so much. He's a and great he, guy super great guy and he said to me you know everything you're doing is so cool the ufc the wwe um acting music uh homeland security but have you ever thought that if you stopped doing all of that and just focused on one thing how great you might be and that was a tough pill for me to swallow because i really did i loved all of those things but he was right and i came home trying to wrap my head around why I needed to focus on just one thing and what would that one thing be, right? Would the one thing be wrestling WWE because I was working with Bill Goldberg at the time or would it be music? Is this like some kind of like Goldberg mind meld, like everyone who's well, Goldberg? <laughs> you, you want to know a, fun, a funny Goldberg side story? Um, Goldberg called me one day, Bill Goldberg from WWE, and he was very upset. Sure. I can't believe they made a TV show with my name, and I didn't approve this. How does this happen? And I said, well, Bill, there's other Goldbergs out there. you know. And this one happens to be a really nice guy who, by the way, grew up idolizing you, right? Because he was named Adam Goldberg, and he loved Bill Goldberg. And he's been trying to get your uh, TV agent to get you on the show, but they keep saying you won't do it. I think it would be a great idea for you to come on the show and an opportunity for you to show that you're a great comedic actor. Oh, I don't know. I said, well, if I can get you a deal, if I can negotiate a deal where you have multiple appearances and are a recurring co-star, will you do it? Yeah, I'll do it, but it's got to be, it's got to make sense. So I went back to Adam and we did it and Bill became the gym teacher. So we, we got <laughs> Goldberg on the Goldbergs. And, you know, uh, I think shortly after that, uh, Bill got cast for NCIS, and he's been doing a lot of TV. So everything tends to come together and happen as it should. Um, but because of Michael Strahan's advice, I focus just on uh, my company, which essentially creates first responder-centric artwork 
and turns it into collectibles, whether it's coins, pins, patches. I'm, I'm wearing a new pin that I made for you, the unveiling of it. Not left, not right, forward. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Um, which, which is something that you've been a huge supporter of um, from the, the get-go. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free? Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Now, when I was running for president, I had perhaps a dozen, maybe more, maybe a couple dozen uh, military veterans or current enlisted uh, come up to me, sometimes also uh, first responders, and then say, thank you for what you're doing, and then give me a challenge coin and urging me to keep going. Uh, And it was always immensely meaningful because it made me feel like they understood the spirit uh, of service that animated me. Uh, and it, it made me feel like uh, I was an honorary part of a brotherhood. And I feel like that's what your company does for more and more people. Um, it enables them to feel also like they're supporting some of the people that put their lives on the line to keep us safe, whether it's at home or abroad. I appreciate that. Um, I look at my, my coins as artwork. And as you know, the First Amendment gives us the right to express ourselves, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, And I think that in history, uh, there's been so many times throughout the history of the world that artwork has been censored. And when when I create something, I try not to put a spin on it. I try to sometimes capture a moment in time to capture an agency or um, the mission of a particular event. And then I hope that what I create does exactly what you said, that it makes people think, that it makes them feel a part of something, uh, and that it starts a conversation. And a lot of times I will create something because something has happened in the world, and I feel like either the media is putting a spin on it in a certain direction, or it's important and nobody's... uh, thinking about it. And I want to make sure that it becomes a tangible thing. So to see so many thousands of people collect them and to get a feeling, you know, to, to be able to create something that gives any, anybody any kind of feeling is powerful. Yeah. I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I was in South Carolina 
uh, and literally 65% of the forward party leaders and members were either military veterans currently in service or from a military family. And it really made me feel great. Honestly, I was like, oh, if these are the people forward's attracting, like we're doing something right. Uh, why do you think it is that folks who uh, have committed so much, uh, like you have, frankly, are attracted to forward? You know, uh, I was talking to Christopher uh, Vaccaro, who's working on my book with me that you had recently spoken to. And we've spoken to such a diverse group of people. And whenever we bring up politics, they it tends to be so divisive, right? Uh, it's either so far left or so far right. And I think that people in general, especially people who love America, are looking for an opportunity to be part of something that's not divisive, where they can love America and they don't have to pit themselves against other people in the process, right? Like, if I go back to before I really knew what a Republican or a Democrat was, it didn't matter to me what... I didn't know what a political affiliation was. I just knew that I loved my country. And I knew that my parents loved our country. And as I got older and as I worked on the border, I gravitated towards the right because the the right were supporting the mission that I was on to protect the border. And then as I got older than that, I realized that everybody wants to protect the border. It's just being politicized. And it, it shouldn't be politicized because politics are not part of keeping America safe. Our mission in border security is to facilitate lawful travel and trade, right? So one of our biggest missions after 9-11 became anti-terrorism. But what people don't realize is one of our biggest missions in protecting the border is to facilitate, facilitate trade, right? So we have an economy that is run by the import and export of goods. And if that cargo cannot come in and out safely, and if the United States cannot ensure that the products are safe for commerce and they're not going to hurt children, they're not going to have chemicals that create an issue for people or animals or introduce pests into, uh, you know, our citrus farms. It's such a diverse mission, but nothing in that mission has anything to do with politics. There's a universal desire for public safety, uh, which isn't um, isn't political. It's not ideological. Um, right. and, and yet, unfortunately, in our current time, 99% uh, of things in American life become a political football where it's either, you know, like this or that. Uh, so you've personally trained probably thousands of law enforcement officers. The, the country recently uh, has been racked by this video of a uh, black man, Tyree Nichols, being killed by police officers. It was a ghastly, horrifying video. Uh, one of the things that did make me grateful was that these cops were charged with murder and uh, arrested themselves, which is something that, you know, you rewind 10, 12 years ago. I mean, that used to be what the protests were about, which was like the cops are being uh, right. brought to justice. Um, do you have any thoughts on... Uh, the training of law enforcement officers, what's our way out of this? Like, you know, like you, you see something terrible like that and what goes through your mind? 
I, I see a lot of missed opportunities, and um, I believe that Congress is in a position to affect a lot of change that can correct so much of this, but I don't think they're focused on the problem. Um, and I think the problem is twofold. One part of the problem, we, and we can discuss both, one of them is training, and the other one is equipment. So the first thing that I think needs to happen is that all law enforcement agencies use a use of force continuum. And use of force uh, policy dictates that you use the least amount of force to control the situation, to bring a subject into compliance, or to make sure that people aren't hurt. And once that happens, you de-escalate. And in the situation that you referred to, the de-escalation, it didn't seem to happen. So that that's problem number one. And that leads me to a training deficiency. And I think back about my training and the training that I, I can only draw from my experiences of what I've been through as far as, as training. And I have asked friends, hey, when you train, are you ever put in a scenario where typically in, in your training you have two officers and a, a non-compliant subject? One is the cover, one is the contact. The contact officer speaks the other officer provides cover there you could because you can't have two people talking at the same time so is there a training being done that teaches law enforcement officers what to do when their partner or somebody in that altercation doesn't do what they're supposed to do do you how do you divert your attention from the subject to your partner like hey this is not okay you need to stop right ask tell make so if they don't stop, you need to make them stop. But if you're not training people how to do this, you can't expect them to do this. And that wow. needs to be drilled into all law enforcement officers from day one. You do what you're trained. That's, that's your, you're programmed to conduct yourself by how you're trained to. So if we're not training them how to respond in this situation, then leadership is just as much to blame as the officers that are committing these crimes. And when I look at Congress, I've met with so many um, representatives from the House, and I feel like they, they have an opportunity to divert resources and funding to creating um, a standard, right? Why should every police department have a different policy? Why should every police department have a different use of force? Does it make sense that the use of force in California should be different than the use of force in Seattle or New York or anywhere else, right? We're all humans. We're all in the United States of America. It should be a uniform use of force. And I think um, in addition to that, we need to be um, researching the police weapons and the police uniforms to put them in, in two scenarios, one, a uniform that's going to better protect them, and two, some sort of intermediate force weapons that the weapon of choice is not going to necessarily kill somebody but can still have the same speed of stopping them. And I'm not a scientist, I'm not an engineer, but I think if we can send people to outer space and we can outfit people in things that can protect them at the highest of altitudes and land on different planet, right? If we can land on the moon, we can certainly give the police officers an opportunity to, even if they gain four more seconds in their thought process, right? So 
if I, when I'm talking to you right now on this video stream, there's no delay, right? You can hear me right away, right? Yeah. So if I, I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to answer it. What are you going to give your family for dinner tonight? Uh, shake Shack. <laughs> right. So I Something think that, like that. that took you four or five seconds to figure out. Okay. So part of our training is that we have to, in our weapons qualification, we have to come from our holster, aim our weapon in, and fire three rounds in three seconds. That means within three seconds, I've not only determined that I have to kill you, I've done it. So how can I make that determination when you can't even tell me what you're going to have for dinner in the same amount of time, right? But that's the training that we're giving. And how do we change that? We change that by figuring out a way to buy more time because ultimately that decision is sometimes between the decision between life or death for that officer. So they're trained that they're going to go home at the end of the day. So what can we do to outfit them better? So they have two more seconds because sometimes that two more seconds, right, can show you that when somebody's reaching, this is what they're getting, right? But you, you, you're, it's drilled into your mind, right? Three seconds from the holster, and that's just not enough time. So if we can send, I've lost track of how much money we've sent to Ukraine, but what I haven't lost track of is how much money we've spent researching how to better outfit our police, how to create uniform training for them, because none, no resources from the Congress have been given to that. So since the terrible incident with George Floyd, how we police hasn't changed. It's the same. So if we want to change that, we have to look at our training and we have to look at our equipment and we have to be able to bridge that gap and innovate in the same way we innovate how we create systems and processes. We have to innovate how we police and how we use force. Well, one, one thing I have noticed uh, in the headlines is that it's harder to recruit police officers in various locations. Uh, and that that's uh, a long term negative for everyone, in my opinion, because uh, you want good cops. Um, but there are a lot of places where uh, citizens just want more of a police presence because of uh, insecurity or public safety issues uh, and the rest of it. And if you can't get people into service in that way, uh, I mean, I've met young men who and women, uh, but I'm thinking of a young man um, who talked about how being a police officer was his dream job. Uh, and then now he's not so sure. And that just really made me sad, you know, um, because uh, he was a good kid. And I sense that he would be the kind of cop that you'd want out there. We need more cops like that. Yeah, yeah. We just need, uh, you know, but if, if, if we create an environment where uh, being a law enforcement officer is something that everyone avoids, uh, then, I mean, then we're, we're screwed because, you know, like you're going to have community suffer as a result. Right. When you were running for president... One of the things on your platform was to legalize marijuana at a federal level. And that, to me, is so important for America on so many different aspects. But believe it or not, I feel that that's part of the problem, one of the problems with recruitment for police. Because we want to have community policing, right? We want to have people from a community policing that community because they understand the cultures, they, they know the people. But so much culture 
in America, so many people grow up around things that are deemed to be, for instance, marijuana is legal on a state level. It's illegal on a federal level. So what that means is if you grew up in a place where that was part of your culture and you were around it, chances are when you take a polygraph to become law enforcement, you're going to fail the polygraph. So now we've just taken those people out of the equation. They cannot become police officers. And to me, that's a, that's a big problem, right? Because we're, we're essentially on a state level saying, okay, no problem. This is legal. All right. But I know it's legal, but since you did it, you can't be a cop, right? Well, that, that's the kind of thing that you would realize and think about that the rest of us wouldn't, but it makes sense. Uh, and certainly, I think most people watching this would agree that if you grew up in an environment where they were smoking some weed, uh, that shouldn't preclude you from being a cop. I mean, heck, to your point, it might even make you the kind of cop we need. <laughs> so, someone who's, who's going to be focused on the things that the community is actually worried about. We should all have discretion we should all know that anything that you do if you do too much of it it's a bad thing um and if you are a human being and you make mistakes it should not mean that for the rest of your life you're precluded from being part of the solution that's that's you know the a big aspect of this and also i think that when the government gets together and creates a baseline for use of force and says we're going to make this universal they should also create a grant program where people in these communities that have policing problems have a path to becoming a police officer where they can go and the government will say x amount of dollars is going to be given in grants for you know folks from these areas to become police officers because that's well, part I'm, of the I'm into that, man. I mean, we, we need it. I mean, there's a recruitment problem. And uh, if, if we can um, give people a pathway to becoming an officer and solve the, the recruitment problem, I mean, that's a win-win. One of, the, one of the biggest things that was taken out of 9-11, which led to the creation of Homeland Security, was that there was too many stovepipes, too many different agencies unable to communicate. So they wanted to level the playing field and bring everybody in line with each other so they could work together and make sure there was open communication and these things would never happen again. The same thing should apply to how we police America. We should not be policing on different frequencies. Well, you, you talked about George Floyd. I mean, there was a, a massive a burst of energy for reform and nothing passed at a federal level because of our political polarization. You know, you're essentially like 50-50. Uh, and so what, what it does is it highlights the need to reform the system, in my mind, because a majority of Americans are for some type of reform. They're also for uh, a lot of other things, uh, you know, around uh reasonable common sense uh, firearm uh, guidelines and rules uh, addressing climate change. I mean, there are a lot of things that most Americans are for that you just look up and be like, well, can't have it because system. And, and, and that, <laughs> that's, you know, and that's, you know, and it's, it's making people nuts because, yeah. uh, you know, that's not the way we're brought up to think our country functions. Like we're brought up to think, hey, enough of us want something. It's a democracy and we should be able to get it. But instead it's like, oh, nope, can't have it. Uh, that the, you know, like it's not gonna get through Congress. And, and that, that's the hard work that we're doing 
at board. Thank you for, for being a part of it. So right now you, you have an attachment to Florida and Florida is at something of a unique juncture politically. Uh, I, and uh, I think that your community is somewhere kind of purplish uh, in, in the middle. What's the, the vibe in Florida? Yeah, Florida is, um, it's got pockets of different components of political affiliations. And for whatever reason, I learned this uh, because at one point I had aspirations of maybe pursuing leadership in politics. And I learned that it was very sad to me. There was no more middle. It was, there was no more moderates. It was far left or far right. And it was very hard to bring people together. And that's what really what I loved about what you were doing. Um, and I see uh, local politicians where I am. Um, there's one, her name's Robin Bartleman. And I really try to get behind some of the things that she's doing because some of them for our community are good. And then I see um, she voted against stricter penalties for trafficking fentanyl. And I'm like, how could you not, you know, do everything you can? That stuff's killing people, yeah. It's killing uh, people. If you're trafficking, I mean. Right, and that's, that's another example of something that's been politicized. Fentanyl is bad. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent. It doesn't matter what planet you are on. Fentanyl is bad. So... If people trafficking in fentanyl, there was a bill introduced that said, hey, you know, this could be considered um, attempted murder if you sell this. And I said, well, that's a great idea because we need to make the people, people are who are die if you yeah, sell that, trafficking sure. this understand. We're all a million in the next 10 years. I think something like a million people will die from fentanyl. So why don't we take a stance? Why should that be political? Why should we allow yeah. politicians to dictate how we protect our children. We're all having, I hope, we're all having conversations with our kids like, hey, don't take anything because it may not be what, what it's purported to be. It might be fentanyl and it might kill you. Yeah, it, it, it's tragic what's happening to so many families. Uh, you know, and teen, teenagers are buying one thing and it's laced with fentanyl and then, and then they, they overdose and die. Uh, I it was just reading about how there's an effort now to put Narcan in more schools because some kid might just end up uh, overdosing and teachers want to be able to bring them back. And, it, right. and I, what I thought was, well, it's a good idea. We should do that because it might save a life here and there. But wh what have we come to as a country where freaking uh, teachers and principals are thinking, hey, like, is there Narcan in the building? Right. And to make matters worse, a lot of these um, precursor chemicals are being imported into the United States. Right. And many of those chemicals are not on the DEA schedule yet. Some of them are, some of them aren't. But people are importing them and they're making these things themselves. And you can go on to Amazon right now and you can order a pill press. Don't you think that's something that should be regulated? Right. Hell what yeah, it, man. Why the hell do you need a pill press unless it's for something? These are the questions like. that I feel like Congress is not asking. Like, Congress is like, this is bad. China's sending this into our country. They're trying to destroy us. And then it's like, okay, but you're going to give them but the you machine. you can buy a pill press. You can buy the machine. Like, come on. Why aren't you taking the steps to, I mean, in the very least, if you're going to buy a pill press, there should be a, some sort of a, a need. And, uh, and it's just like guns, right? They say, well, I use, the, I use this gun for hunting. 
okay, I use this pill press. What do you use the pill press for? What's the reasonable... Making pills, brother. Yeah, we what are you kinda, making at know, home that you we need to... Know where that's, we got to know where that's yeah. heading. But have you ever um, heard that question asked? I have not until now. You know, uh, I've learned a ton from you. I learn a ton from you every time we, we talk because you, you have such a deep background in things that most of us uh, don't think about because you spend years trying to keep us safe. And if we wind up in position to be able to influence policy, brother, you're going to be one of the first people I call and we can pick that... Uh, brilliant mind of yours for problems that we can solve. If people want to support you, your business, uh, what is the best website? You are on social media, but what is the what is your business's website? The website is americasfrontline.com, and uh, I'm in the final stages, Chris Vaccaro and I, of finishing America's Frontline, which is a book, uh, an autobiographical leadership book of my story, uh, a little kid who wanted to be a rapper who became a, a director with the largest law enforcement agency in America and then left it all behind to be an entrepreneur. So hopefully Well, shit, man. We have out. to have you back when the book comes out, especially because I think I make an appearance. You're a super patriot, a serial entrepreneur, and a great man, a great friend. Louis Gregory, Uncle Louis, let's give it up. AmericasFrontline.com. Seriously, man, when does the book come out? Um, the book is in the final stages. Um, Chris is wrapping it up now, and I think probably in about six months it'll be out. But I will text you, and I would love to come back and share it with you. Six months, it's a date. I'll brandish that book, uh, and I can't wait to read it. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for having me. <laughs>